Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, As It Is. All right, well, I really, really love the song that we sang a little while ago, um, As It Is by Hillsong Worship. I'm, I'm so encouraged to sing those lyrics, right? Whether now or then, death is not my end. I know heaven waits for me. And should I suffer long, this is not my home. I know heaven waits for me. And so one of the greatest promises the child of God has in this life is the promise of the next life, the promise that heaven waits for us. And and Jesus talked about this a lot. And one of the times he talked about it was in John 14, verses one through three. I'll just quote it to you. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, this is what's exciting, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so the question is, are you sad this morning? And if you are, um, don't let your heart be troubled. That's Jesus' counsel to you. Don't let your heart be troubled. And so I believe a good cure for the blues, as we're going through this life and we're getting beat up by the world, a good cure for the blues is to remind ourselves every day that this life is a vapor Here today, gone tomorrow, but the next life, heaven, goes on and on and on and on and on forever and ever and ever, billions and billions and billions of years. And the good news is that if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then a special dwelling place is waiting just for you. Jesus, by the way, the carpenter who knows how to make stuff, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And Jesus is true to his word. And so he knows your likes, he knows your dislikes, and with all of that in mind, he's making a special dwelling place in the Father's house, and one day he will come again, he'll receive us to himself, that where he is, we may be also. And then he's going to escort us to our eternal home. Good news? Absolutely. Are you guys maybe a little bit excited about that? I know I am, I am. And so the promise of heaven is an awesome promise and that's what the next two weeks are gonna be all about. Our text is today, Revelation 4, next Sunday, Revelation chapter five. And as we read and study those verses in those two chapters, we're gonna see right away that John is snatched up, caught up into heaven. And while he's there, he writes about these amazing, astonishing things that he saw. John gives a description of heaven in chapter four, and I can't wait till we get to chapter five next week, uh, equally as exciting. So before we get to John's description of heaven, I want to, by way of review, go over the divine outline for the book of Revelation uh, one more time. And so if you're taking notes, um, here's the divine outline. And before I read that from the screen, let me just read to you what verse that is based on. It's Revelation chapter one, verse 19, where Jesus said to John, 
write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And so based on those words, we see the divine general uh, outline. In chapter one, it's the things past. And so Jesus said that to John in verse 19 of chapter one, write the things which you have seen. Well, what did John just see? He saw the resurrected Christ appear to him on the island of Patmos, and he wrote all about that in chapter one. And then we went to chapters two and three. That's the things which are. That's the things present. And so in those chapters, we studied the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus dictating, John writing uh, to the church of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And by the way, how many churches were there? There were seven. And seven is the number of completion. And so some Bible scholars, and I, I agree with their assessment here, uh, believe that um, the seven churches represent a complete view of church history. And so when you look at the history of the church, what you find out is that the characteristics of the seven churches that we studied have been around every single generation. And so for the last 2,000 years, there have always been churches like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And so the things past, the resurrected Christ revealing himself to John. The things present, the church age. And then now today, we start a brand new section of Revelation, the things to come. And so let's dig in now, uh, chapter four, verse one. John said, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open, whereat in what? Heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. I love that. I love it so much on the count of three, I want you guys to say, come up here like you mean it. Okay, you guys ready for this? Because one day you're gonna hear this trumpet sounding voice say those words. Okay, so one, two, three, go. Come up and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And so like the blast of a trumpet, the voice of Jesus commanded John, like you guys, you guys just said, come up here. And that leads you to your next point. John's translation into heaven is a picture of the rapture of the church. Now, the rapture is a mystery, meaning it's not taught in the Old Testament, but it's absolutely taught in the New Testament. John, uh, Jesus talked about it in John 14, one through three. I quoted those verses a little while ago. Paul talked about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And then he talked about it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I know some of your friends or family members will say, oh, you guys believe in the rapture. <laughs> the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Yes, it is. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verse 17. It's right there. Caught up. Paul said, those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo in the Greek 
Raptus in the Latin Vulgate, from where we get our English word rapture. And so the rapture is absolutely a biblical doctrine. It is a promise of God that we can look forward to. And so Paul, I'm going to read to you what he said to the Corinthian church concerning the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have a relationship with Jesus, and that's a big if, but if you have a relationship with Jesus at the rapture, you, at the sound of the trumpet, will be instantly changed into a new person with an immortal body. And by the way, did you know that if the rapture does not happen in our lifetime, that we will still be part of it even though we died? It's true. You see, if the rapture occurs after you die, then here's the thing. Your spirit, which will be in heaven if you know Jesus, right? You guys know that, right? As soon as you die, as soon as you take your last breath on this earth, it's your first breath up in heaven. Why do you say that? I say that because of 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. There is no soul sleep. Absent from the body, spirit is present with the Lord. And so if the rapture occurs after you die, your spirit, which is up in heaven, is gonna hear the trumpet and then immediately your spirit is gonna go down and reunite with your remains in the grave. Maybe it's bones, maybe it's a body, maybe it's dust, ashes, I don't know. But your spirit is gonna reunite with your remains in the grave and as fast as you can blink. Everybody just blink, right, that quick. In the twinkling of an eye, all of a sudden, you will be caught up into the clouds and you will become a new person in a new immortal, immortal body. That's good news. Now, here's what I'm hoping for. If the rapture occurs while we're still alive. By the way, Paul said, we who are alive and remain. Why did he say that? Because Paul thought the rapture might happen in his lifetime. This is where we get the doctrine of eminence, an eminent rapture. It could happen at any moment. And so I'm hoping it happens while we're alive. So if it happens while we're alive, we're gonna hear the trumpet, and as fast as we can blink, all of a sudden we're gonna be taken up into heaven. We're gonna receive a new body, a new immortal body. We're gonna see the Lord in the clouds, just like that. So one day, millions of people are gonna disappear. Gone. But billions, with a B, are gonna be left behind to enter into the horrors of the tribulation period. 
seven last years of history as we know it, which by the way is chapter six through 19. And so maybe you're, you'll be in your car, you're a believer in Christ, you have a relationship with Christ, and maybe the rapture will happen while you're driving down I-95 and boom, you're gone that quick. Maybe you'll be on a plane. Maybe you'll be talking to your neighbor over the fence and your neighbor, if he doesn't know the Lord, will be freaking out because all of a sudden, boop, you're gone. There's a pile of clothes on the other side of the fence. You're like, honey. If the rapture occurs on Sunday morning, some churches will be filled with piles of clothes. Other churches will be filled with people still going through their religious motions. And they will enter in to the tribulation period. We'll talk about that a lot more later. And so John, on the island of Patmos, one minute he was there, the next second he was gone. He was caught up into heaven. Now, I've said this over and over, but I wanna really get it in your mind and heart. In Revelation, chapters one through three, the word church appears over 20 times. But after chapter four, verses one and two, you never see the word church again in the book of Revelation until the very last chapter, chapter 22, when Jesus is just making some closing comments. You see, especially in chapter six through 19, which describe the tribulation period, you cannot find the church anywhere. Why is that? Because the church is gone. Well, where does the church go? To heaven. And that's what chapters four and five are all about. To heaven. So as I said last week, the tribulation is gonna be a time when God pours out his wrath on a rebellious, Christ-rejecting world. But you and I, as Christ believers, never have to worry about God's wrath being poured out upon us. Why is that? Because Jesus, our hero, our savior, our Lord, he absorbed the wrath of God as he hung half naked on a cross. He took your sin and my sin and his body on the tree. He experienced the wrath of God. And so if Jesus did that for us, it's called substitutionary atonement. If Jesus did that for us, we never have to worry ever, ever, ever about experiencing God's wrath against our sins, ever. So relax, you're a child of God. You're clothed in white garments. You have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so man, you are perfect in God's sight. That's your position as a child of God. And so start living like who you are. That's the good news of the gospel. So today we began the third major section of the book of Revelation. And that's the things to come. And what's that future time gonna look like? If you're taking notes, this is what is on tap for a long time here at Calvary. Uh, chapters four and five, the church in heaven. Chapter six through 19, the tribulation period. Chapter 20, the millennium, or the millennial thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. Chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. And by the way, the millennium is literal. <laughs> We're not amillennial in this church. A in Latin meaning no millennium. And by the way, thousands and thousands and thousands of churches are amillennial. They don't believe in a literal thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. 
And, I, and I, I asked these pastors, what do you do with the Davidic covenant? What do you do with 2 Samuel 7? What do you do with the promise of God to David that one day his son will reign on the throne of Israel over Israel and the world? Was that just something that we can just kind of say, we're gonna interpret that allegorically? That's playing fast and loose with the word of God and I, I wanna be careful to rightly divide the word of truth. Jesus is coming back, he will reign, for a thousand literal years on this planet before there's a new heavens and a new earth. And so now in verse two, he says, at once when he heard the trumpet, the trumpeting voice saying, come up here. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And so the first thing that John saw when he got to heaven was the father sitting on his throne. That leads you to your next point. The Father sits on heaven's throne showing his sovereignty over all things. And you might say, well, how do you know this is the Father and not the Son? Well, because next week, did I tell you I can't wait to get to next week? Because next week, the Son, in the form of a lamb that had been slain, approaches the throne and takes a scroll from the one sitting on the throne. So this is the Father. And the Father is sovereign. Aren't you glad the Father sits on the throne of heaven? No matter what's going on in your life, if you know Jesus, you can be assured you have a Father in heaven. You have a Father who loves you, and you have a Father who is in absolute control. He's reigning on heaven's throne. And I love the attributes of God. And I love the attributes of God because they make you wanna worship God. And so when you think about just some of the attributes of God, of our Father who sits on this throne, the Bible teaches that he is omnipotent. That means that he's all-powerful. The Bible says that he's omniscient. That means that he's all-knowing. The Bible says that he's omnipresent, which means that he's everywhere all at the same time by his spirit. The Bible says that he's eternal, and so he has no beginning and no end. He just goes on and on and on and on, backwards and forwards. No he wasn't created, he's the creator. And the Bible teaches that he is sovereign. That means that he is large and in charge. And according to Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love this God and those who are the called according to his purpose all things. But here's the thing. Atheists and humanists will look you in the eye and they'll tell you there is no God sitting on a throne somewhere. You guys need to get over it. It's all pie in the sky by and by. It's fantasy land. And by the way, that's what's taught in most of our universities across this land. There is no God. There is no throne. There's no God that we're accountable to. And so for the atheist, and for the humanist, man sits on his own throne, and man is only accountable to himself. But the truth is this. The only throne that man sits on is the one that's made out of porcelain <laughs> and has a little silver handle on the side of it. That's the throne that we sit on. The truth is that one day, Every knee is gonna bow and every tongue is gonna confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord. Even the knees of the humanist will bow and even the tongues of the atheist will confess. But the thing is, at that time, it's not gonna be willingly. There's gonna be some big, awesome, holy angel that's gonna say, kneel right now. And so tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers, whether they listen to you or not, let them know it's so much better to kneel willingly than to be forced to kneel. Look at verse three. And he who sat there, that's the father sitting on his throne, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And so there's no way, you know, in, our, in any language that we can adequately describe the glory of God. So John's just doing his best here, and he is inspired by the Spirit, absolutely, but he's just trying his best. This is what I'm seeing, okay, so this is what I'm writing. And so he's doing his best, and he does that by describing the emanations that are coming out of God as he sits on his throne. And I want you to notice that John did not say, I was caught up into heaven and I saw um, an old guy with a big long beard sitting on a throne. That's not what he says. He says the one on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And so Jasper, I'm sure you know, is a beautiful stone and it comes, by the way, in a variety of different colors, a blue, purple, green, reddish, brown. And so those colors are emanating from the Father as he sits on his throne, and he had the appearance like carnelian. And so you have this uh, beautiful stone with a reddish-orange type of color. And so coming from the Father, if you can just try to imagine this, and I, I went, by the way, to Google, and I said, picture of God on the throne from Revelation 4, and all these artists tried to capture this, which was interesting, but none of them even came close, right? And so John's trying, and so as he sees the Father, what does he see? He sees these bright colors emanating, flashing before him. And encircling the throne was a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. And so a rainbow that's greenish in color. That's what he sees. And then he says in verse four, he continues his description. Around the throne were 24 thrones. That's interesting. Kind of makes you think about Jesus' promise of reigning with him. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed, you gotta get this, clothed in what kind of garments? With golden, what? Crowns on their head. And so you hear, here you got these elders, 24 of them, they're clothed in white garments, very significant, and they have golden crowns on their head, very significant, in order to identify who they are. So who are they? Well, I always like to get a little help from our friends, and so John MacArthur, uh, one of the guys that I read this week, he said the identity of the 24 elders has been much debated. While some see them as an order of angelic beings, it seems best to see them as human representatives of what? The church. And I agree with that statement. I think there's no way these can be angels. The reason I believe that is because 
we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And nowhere in the Bible do you ever see an angel wearing a crown. Nowhere in the Bible do you ever see an angel sitting on a throne. Nowhere in the Bible uh, do you ever see an angel that's called an elder. But what did Jesus promise to the faithful believers in those churches that we studied for the last seven weeks? Listen to this. To the church of Smyrna, Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. To the church of Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. To the church of Philadelphia, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And to the church of Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. What are the elders wearing on their head? Golden. What do they got around their body? White garments. Sound familiar? And so when you consider what Jesus said to those who are part of the true church, they're gonna wear crowns, they're gonna have white garments. And then when you consider that after the rapture, Paul teaches that we're all gonna go to the judgment seat of Christ. Remember that whole passage? Our works are gonna be judged, not our sins. Our sins are taken care of. Our works will be judged. Some will be gold, uh, silver, precious stones. Others will be wood, hay, and stubble. And if we're faithful to serve Jesus on this planet, we will receive crowns. And so when you consider what will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. And then, number three, when you consider the chronology of Revelation, chapters two and three, the church age, chapters four, one and two, John caught up into heaven, and then all of a sudden, in chapter four, verse four, you have these elders with white garments and golden crowns. It seems pretty obvious that these guys represent the church. So before we move on to verse five, why are there 24 of them? And so I think because of what we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, because in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, you have these 24 men, they're listed, their names are listed, they are Levites, they represent 24 different groups of Levites. Who are the Levites? The Levites were the guys who served the Lord in the earthly temple. And so likewise, now in heaven, you got 24 officers clothed in white garments. And what are they doing? Um, they're representing the church who's gonna serve the Lord in the heavenly temple. So we move on to verse five. Is, is all this making sense to you guys? All right, look at verse five. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You may want to go back sometime this week and listen to Carrie Job's song she came out with like five years ago called the Revelation Song. She's quoting this right here. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, and John helps us out here, he gives us what this is, which are the seven spirits of God. And so let's recap. John caught up into heaven. First thing he sees, the Father, 
sitting on a throne, glorious, colors, all different kind of colors, emanating, flashing. And then he sees lightning flashing and he hears peals of thunder. And then after that, he looks and before the throne, you have these seven flaming torches. Okay, so what do those seven flaming torches represent? Well, they represent the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how do you know that? Again, you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Okay, so just turn left one or two pages to Revelation chapter one, verses four and five. Revelation one, four and five. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, that's the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, and from, here it is, the seven spirits who are before his throne, so that's the Holy Spirit, and then verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so right there you see Father, Son, and Holy uh, Spirit, but he does refer to the seven spirits who are before his throne. The same exact phrase that he now uses in chapter four and verse five. Let's look at it again. Halfway down, verse five. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the, here it is, seven spirits of God. And so why in the world is the Holy Spirit, who's one, represented by seven torches? Well, here's why. Because seven, once again, is the number of perfection and completion. And so these seven torches represent the perfect and complete work of the Holy Spirit. And if you weren't with us in in, uh, chapter one, as we covered that, I quoted from Isaiah 11, one and two. So everybody look at me for just a second. The Holy Spirit, in Isaiah 11, one and two, he's called the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven descriptions of one Holy Spirit. And so here again, you see the Father in Revelation four. He's sitting on his throne. And then when we get to chapter five, we're gonna see the Son like a lamb that had been slain, approaching this throne. And then before the throne, you see these seven flaming torches representing the Holy Spirit. Yet another passage pointing to the triunity of God. One God, please everybody say one God. God. Gotta make sure I clear that up. We don't believe in three gods. We're not polytheistic, we're not pagans. We believe in the same God of the Old Testament, one God, but we know through the New Testament he's eternally existent through three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, look at verse six now. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, The first living creature, like a a lion. Maybe you want to underline lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And then the fourth living creature, 
like an eagle in flight. So who in the world are these four living creatures? Let's define them. If you're taking notes, uh, we'll put it up on the screen. The four living creatures are the cherubim, a special order of angelic beings who worship God. Cherubim. And you say, well, how do you know that? You use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Have I said that in this message yet? And so when you go to Ezekiel, you don't have to do that now, but Ezekiel chapter one and chapter 10, we see the same beings. And they're there, and they're worshiping um, the Lord. And in chapter 10, Ezekiel says, these are the cherubim. Now, when, when you think about what they look like, all these eyes, front, back, inside, outside, it kind of looks, maybe you're thinking of a, you know, uh, an alien from outer space or a, a monster from a horror movie. But I guarantee you, when we get to the throne room and we see these massive angelic creatures, we're gonna be taken back by their beauty as they're crying out, holy, 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 as we'll see here in just a moment. And so scholars believe that their many eyes represent their vast knowledge. But what do their faces represent? Okay, so we wanna keep the verses in their context and we wanna interpret every verse according to the context. And when you jump ahead to verse 11, we're gonna see that the elders are worshiping God for his creation. And so that leads us to believe that the four faces of the four living creatures represent the four general categories of creatures that God has created. And so the lion, representing of all the wild animals, the ox representing all the domesticated creatures, the eagle representing the flying creatures, and of course man representing all intelligent creatures. Okay, so that's the best we can do. Some people say, well, they, they, they represent the four different gospels. Maybe, maybe you're right. Uh, he, here's what I think we should do. When we all get up there, we'll go up and tap one of them on the shoulder. <laughs> hey man, what do your four faces represent? And we'll see what he says. And now we read one of the most beautiful sections of the entire Bible. Check it out, verse eight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, can we say the rest of verse eight together? Go ahead. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And notice this, they cast their what? Crowns, where do they get the crowns? The judgment seat of Christ. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What a worship service this is gonna be. The cherubim crying, holy, holy, holy. The church, represented by the 24 elders, casting our crowns before the throne of God. Everybody worshiping God. So what does the word worship mean? Well, you go to Vines, here's what you find out. It means to make obeisance 
to do reverence to. And it's from pros, which means towards, and kuneo, which means to kiss. So here we are, we're looking at this awesome scene in heaven. We see these cherubim, and what are they doing? They're giving obeisance. They're giving reverence to God the Father on his throne. Why are they doing that? Because they're worshiping him because of his attributes of purity, power, and perpetuity, or eternality. Look at it, I had you read it out loud. He says, um, they say, holy, 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 that's God's purity. By the way, he says, be holy as I am holy. Is the Lord God Almighty? That speaks of his power. Who was and is and is to come, that speaks of his perpetuity or his eternal nature. And ladies and gentlemen, since chapters four and five are all about the church in heaven, you've got to get something. If you know Jesus, you're going to be there. You're going to see all of this. You're going to experience it. And what are you going to say? And what am I going to say? Well, who represents us in this passage? The 24 elders. And what are they saying in verse 11? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. This is going to be a dress rehearsal, getting ready for when it actually happens, when I look over and see you up there in the throne room. And we say verse 11. So we're going to say it all together like we mean it. You ready? On the count of three, verse 11. One, two, three, go. I heard about 10 different translations. Of I thought everyone's speaking out in tongues right now. So let, let's try it this way. If you happen to have the ESV, out loud like you mean it on the count of three, and I'll read with you, okay? If you have other translations, okay, they're great. Unless you have the New World Translation, throw that one in the garbage. But if you have other translations, that, that's great, but just... Be quiet for just a second, okay? So for those of you with the ESV, out loud like you mean it on the count of three, verse 11. One, two, three. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so guess what? We're gonna say that. Guess what? We're gonna be there. And guess what? We're gonna worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We're gonna make obeisance to him. We're gonna give reverence to him. Not only that, toward and kiss, we're gonna kiss toward him. We're gonna be blowing God kisses on the throne with no embarrassment and no shame whatsoever. And, and, so, and some people are reserved in worship service. They put their hands in their pockets and they kind of, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Listen, in heaven, you are going to have both hands outstretched to God, and you're going to worship him with passion because you're going to see him. You are, I am, going to blow kisses to the Father. And so why are we waiting till we get to heaven to do this? Why are we waiting until we get to heaven to passionately worship the Lord? We don't have to wait. We can do it now. 
And that leads you to your last point, if you're taking notes. Let's worship now with as much passion as we will worship in heaven. Now. Let's do it corporately every Sunday, every Sunday. If we're in Port St. Lucie and we're not sick, let's be here and corporately gather together and worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But don't just stop on Sundays. Listen, uh, here's the application right here. You gotta get this. Don't stop on Sundays. Worship God every day. Every day as you get into the word, every day as you get into prayer, add a song or two to your devotions. I love Spotify, I download Hillsong, Elevation, Chris Tomlin, Crowder, all of that. And I incorporate those things into my daily devotions. And I worship God in spirit and in truth. And so let's worship corporately every Sunday. Let's worship individually every single day. And as we do that, here's what's gonna happen. We're going to experience the presence of God. Now I understand as children of God, God promised I'll never leave you nor forsake you. His presence is always with us. But don't you understand that during worship, sometimes his presence is tangible and real. You say, why is that? Psalm 22, three, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. He's enthroned on the praises of Israel. So we don't have to wait till we get to Revelation four in heaven to worship the Father. We can do it right now. And guess what? We're gonna do it right now. And so if you guys, if you guys could stand to your feet, please nobody out of respect for God, please nobody leaving right now to get a jump start on parking. Okay, don't do that. Let's worship the Lord with passion right now and then I'll close in prayer. Aaron? Holy, 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 because our God is worthy. Allow us. 
Spirit to flood in this place. Let's sing this out together because He loves us, because we are loved children by our Heavenly Father. cheering uh, for a sports team and man we get to cheer for the eternal God who saved us so lift it up right now let them know how much you love them how much you want to worship him and praise him for all that he's done in our lives let them know lift him up he's worthy so worthy of our praise so worthy of our praise One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.